Now, if you would take a copy of God's Word and turn to the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation, and turn to the middle of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, we'll look at verses 1 through 6 for our main consideration this evening, our main exposition, but we'll read the entirety of the chapter, the 17 verses of Revelation chapter 12. Now, let me remind you that in the second and third chapters of Revelation, Jesus has messages for seven churches in Asia Minor. And in that, he promises those seven churches a reward to all those who will overcome. The verb there, to overcome, nikeo in the Greek means to conquer or to overcome. But that verb is left without an object until we reach the middle of the book of Revelation. And it's here in chapter 12 and then following, we see clearly the one whom the churches must overcome is Satan. So here in the center of the book, we are reminded that the church will overcome her enemy. Why? Because God has provided the conqueror. And so they will conquer the church will conquer, we will conquer, because we are united to the one who has conquered Satan. So the first six verses of Revelation chapter 12, which will be our main focus this evening, instructs the Christian's hope in reminding us, from a different perspective, the assurance we have of Christ's victory as we persevere against the assaults of Satan today. So in order to set forth that hope in this chapter, we're going to look at the significance of the symbols in the first six verses of chapter 12. We'll read the entire chapter. Before we do so, let's ask for God's help in hearing His Word read and preached this evening. Join me in prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You and say, this is Your Word. We do not stand above it, but we wish to submit to it, knowing that it is a sweet comfort to those who fear you, to those who seek to believe, those who would say we don't have all understanding, but we believe and we are seeking greater understanding. So would your spirit do that for us tonight, that the precious truth that is laid out for us here in this chapter, that it would be for the strengthening of our faith, for our encouragement, and ultimately for our endurance and joy and hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to a male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and a times and a half time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Well, I don't know what Christmas traditions you have in your home. We have a couple in ours. Um, one of them is a book that we have read to our children since they were babies. Um, it's a little kid's book. It's called, Who is Coming to Our House? And I thought about reading it. Um, it's short enough, but opted not to. Just, I can give you the plot summary. It's the Christmas story told from the perspective of the animals in the stable. It's a sweet story. It's, it's a cute uh, take on it. Uh, in Scripture, we see the Christmas story from several different perspectives, not particularly the, the animals. We know that they were there. We do see it in the Gospels from Mary's perspective, from Joseph's perspective. We can see it from the wise men seeking the Christ. We see it from shepherds. And then we see it from evil King Herod as well. But the Apostle John, in two of uh, his writings in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, and here in the book of Revelation, he gives us a different perspective on the Christmas story. There in John's Gospel, the Word became flesh, the eternal Word. We get the Christmas story from the perspective of eternity, you could say. And here in this book, we get the Christmas story told from the perspective of the heavenly realm. It's a flashback to the conflict that's taking place in the spiritual realm at the first Christmas. Now, the most basic outline of the book of Revelation is a two-part division. 
Chapters 1 through 11 illustrate the world's opposition to the church. But here at the middle of the book, we begin the second division, where chapters 12 through 22 reveal the struggle, the deeper conflict that is going on in the spiritual realm as Christ waged messianic war against his enemy and Satan. In Revelation 12, Satan is portrayed as a dragon, and he is the one who's been orchestrating and continues to orchestrate opposition against the church in this world. He is the first of four figures who are revealed in the second half of the book, 12 through 22, to be those harassing the people of God. But here at the center of the book, there's no confusion over who the enemy is. And more importantly, the theme of the entire book, the victory of the lamb over the dragon, is clearly and memorably told to us. It's Christmas as a war story with Jesus as the victor. Now the chapter has three sections reread. The first section, it's a vision. A woman is experiencing the pangs of labor. She's going to give birth to a male child, and a great red dragon waits, seeking to devour the child. The one born of the woman escapes the dragon and is caught up to the throne of God. The woman flees the wilderness from the dragon. That's verses 1 through 6. Then in verses 7 through 12, it's an explanation of what happened between the male child and the dragon. The child did not merely escape, but is victorious. In this section, we learn that the decisive blow against the dragon, it was the cross. Do you remember that in verse 11? It says that the church will overcome its enemy, having conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And it says, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The second section, verses 7 through 12, explains that the woman and her children cannot be conquered in this wilderness period because of the work of the cross. The final section, verses 13 through 17, is an explanation of what happens to the woman as she fled into the wilderness while the dragon still seeks to destroy her, even though he's been cast down from heaven. And he is unable to destroy her just as he was unable to destroy the one that was born to her. So kind of getting a picture of how these cha- this chapter functions as a whole, let's focus on the, the three main symbols in the first six verses, and then we'll do so under four, four headings. In verses 1 to 2, I want us to think about tonight the splendor of the woman. And then in verses 3 to 4, the great red dragon and his rage. And then in verses, verse 5, we'll pay attention to the male child who reigns. And then we close this evening looking at the flight into the wilderness and our hope in verse 6. The splendor of the woman, the first two verses. Who is this woman? Well, the answer to that question can be found in paying attention to her attire and her description. We are told that she is a sign in heaven, clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Sun, moon, and stars. Well, 
these images in Scripture would lead us to believe that this woman represents Israel. In Genesis 37, 9, Joseph tells his father Jacob of a dream in which included the sun, moon, and 11 stars. In Joseph's dream, the sun and moon were his parents, and the 11 stars were his 11 brothers, Joseph being the 12th star. Though there are elements of the vision that we have of this woman that's similar to Hellenistic combat myths, this is explicitly Hebrew imagery that the Apostle John is, is relaying to us in this vision. John's audience would have understood this woman to be Israel, the 12 stars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But throughout the book of Revelation, whenever you see an image of a character, um, quite often their character is depicted by their clothing. And that's what we have in this vision of the woman. It's not just that she's Israel, that she is faithful Israel. The image of being clothed with the sun connects her to the majesty of God. In Psalm 104, 2, it says that God is clothed in light. And here, this woman, she shares the radiance that God has bestowed upon her. The moon is under her feet. Another picture of the splendor in her radiance. In Scripture, sometimes the moon is, illustrates beauty, as we see that in the Song of Songs. But also, its placement under her feet means that God has exalted her and given her a place of dominion under His reign. And the crown signifies her royalty, which is important because of the child that she is to bear. But the crown also tells of her destiny. She's wearing a particular crown. The Greek word for the crown is stephanos which is not merely a crown or a diadem like the dragon has on, on his heads, but a, a Stephanos is a victor's wreath. Faithful Israel is pictured as a woman who is on the side of God in this great conflict, and she will be on the victorious side. Now, the symbolism of Israel as a woman in Scripture is used both negatively and positively in the prophets. Just in Isaiah alone, it's used both negatively and in a, a commendable way. So in Isaiah chapter 1, the daughter of Zion is abandoned because of her wickedness. But later in Isaiah, in chapter 66, Israel is a woman in labor who delivers a son who represents the rebirth of God's people. The woman of Revelation chapter 12 is in line with the latter. Because we are told that she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And that's a direct allusion to what Isaiah said of the woman who would bring forth the Messiah in Isaiah 66. But this woman is, is multifaceted. It's kind of like a diamond, depending on what perspective you're looking at. Now, we'll look at a, a little bit what we can see from Scripture about better understanding her identity and who she is. We begin with saying that she's not the, the woman of Greek mythology. Before and during the period in which this letter was sent to churches, the Roman imperial court was using the Greek myth of the birth of the sun god Apollos and applying it to their emperor to say that he was divine and that he was the Lord of all. In that myth, 
Apollos' mother, Leto, escapes a dragon in order to give birth. And we don't go to route that some modern scholars would do and say that John is just borrowing the woman and the dragon myth and using that motif for his own purpose. But John's vision of the woman is refuting the emperor's claim. He's making the case that Greek mythology has perverted the ancient story of the conflict of a woman and a serpent. John is setting the record straight because the first Christians, as they would have read about this vision, they would have thought of Eve in the garden. They would have known about the pagan myths, most likely, but they would have known that this is telling of Eve and the serpent because the dragon here is identified in verse 9 as that ancient serpent, as Satan, the devil. And then it goes on to say in the last verse, there in verse 17, that the dragon makes war with the rest of her seed. The reference to serpent and seed brings clearly before us the image of Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3. And then the first declaration of the gospel where God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Eve is told in Genesis 3.16 that she would have pain in childbirth, but one day from her will come the seed that will crush the serpent. And here the woman is experiencing the pain of childbirth and her seed conquers the dragon. Now, Roman Catholic commentators um, often associate, and it's common in Roman Catholic teaching to come across those who would say that this woman here is, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there's even parallels to be drawn out with this woman fleeing the dragon and Mary's fleeing of Herod with Joseph when they flee to Egypt in Matthew chapter 2. But that woman shouldn't be only associated with Mary, but Mary is included in the multifaceted identity because Mary is in her short testimony of what we know of her, an example of the faithful among Israel. Those who come to God believing and obeying His Word. There's also a connection between the woman and the church because there's the seed and there's also the offspring that we're told of in Revelation 12. And of the offspring, they are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And furthermore, there's a connection between the 12 tribes and the church in the New Testament. The church under the New Covenant, there is a, a strong continuation of God's faithful people. Those who were waiting for the child to be born, then share continuity with those who look back at the child's first coming and await his return. The number 12 is a reference to the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, 12 through 14, when New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, there are 12 gates for 12 tribes of Israel and then 12 foundations for the 12 apostles. The woman is the faithful believing community before and after Christ's first coming. Revelation helps us see continuity between God's covenantal dealing with his people. This is the faithful believing community and its roots reach back 
prior to God's covenant with Abraham, their roots reach back all the way to Genesis 3. So she represents those who were waiting for the seed of the woman and those who after Christ's first coming will overcome the dragon by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Here is the splendor of faithful Israel. Here is the splendor of the church. It would not have been recognized by the world and it's not recognized today. Those seven churches that begin the book of Revelation, they weren't esteemed by their neighbors and colleagues. No, they were the opposite, and they were persecuted. It's a reminder that from the world's perspective, the church seems insignificant. But John has given us a, a glimpse into how God views his church. And one way to demonstrate her splendor, her, her radiance, is that her enemy knows her true significance and is filled with rage towards her. Young people, to be a Christian and to be faithful to the church, it's not going to help you on your resume. It's not going to help you to make friends and build a prosperous career. But it's the most important association that you have and is the thing that is most significant about your identity that you are a part of the splendid bride of Christ and that all that you can accomplish in this life eventually is going to turn to nothing. And what matters is if you are among those wearing the victor's reef. If you are among those who love not their lives to their death and have so pledged their allegiance to the male child who's killed the dragon. Then we have in verses 3 to 4 the rage of the great red dragon. Now the second sign that we're told in verse 3 is this enormous dragon. The first being a woman. Now Nearly every ancient culture had a version of a dragon myth. And they all shared some, some similarities with this passage. There were three characteristics of these dragons in the ancient world. They desired kingship. They were associated with the forces of chaos. And they were depicted as being vicious and evil in their very countenance. The symbol of a violent dragon imagery was very common in the ancient world. But as it was with the woman, the defeat of the dragon is found in Hebrew scriptures. And John is not relying on pagan myths for source material. No, all the great stories come from the one true story. The dragon is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Verse 9 of chapter 12. The dragon is the antagonist of antagonists found in the Bible. He has been the great enemy of God and mankind from the very beginning. And we're given a description. He is depicted as being red and having seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its head. Just as it was with the woman, the depiction of the dragon reveals something of its character. The dragon's desire is to kill the child born to the woman. 
Therefore, this red is, we, we know what red means here. It's meant to be he's filled with murderous rage. He desires the shedding of blood. It's pointing to Satan's murderous nature. Then the dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. This explains how Satan seeks to execute his evil schemes. He works through evil kingdoms who persecute God's people. The dragon imagery in our passage is dependent upon Daniel's vision of beasts with ten horns, which represent an evil empire in Daniel 7, verses 7 and 24. A year ago, we were in uh, Daniel looking at this. The seven heads illustrate Satan's dominion through evil kingdoms. And it's meant to, the number seven, that this is somewhat comprehensive and complete in this world as it is now. But as we see, the seven crowns represent the dragon's false claim to sovereignty. And that's why he is not wearing a victor's wreath, but he's wearing diadems. The two different crowns illustrate their destinies. One has a temporary reign. The dragon has real power, but in the end, it is the woman with the lasting victorious crown. The dragon's strength is illustrated by its tail, sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky. This is emphasizing the dragon's power, but John's intention is to explain that the activity of the evil one that is going on in other spheres does influence the events of earth. And so we are to recognize what is happening and that who is behind the evil in the world. Now we get a, a, a clear picture of the rage and hatred of the dragon for God's people, for God's Messiah. But that's not how Satan does his own PR. No, he, he, he does a little bit image, a little different image branding. He presents himself as an angel of light. And he comes seeking to deceive and to tempt. And in doing so, he puts forward temptations to humanity in such a way, promising glory, wealth, pleasure, all these things. And here John reminds us that we can't be deceived. That when temptation is before us and it seems like this is going to be good, this will be enjoyable, that if it's contrary to what God has commanded in His Word, if it's a temptation seeking to tempt us to do something that God forbids in His Word, or if it's a temptation seeking to get us not to obey something that God's done in His Word, it's coming from the dragon whose intent is your total and complete destruction. The character of the tempter reminds us that every temptation is by his design for our destruction. And we're not to make friends with the enemy. Then we see in verse 5, the male child who reigns. The woman gives birth to a male child. Unlike the woman and the dragon, we're not given a physical depiction of the child. Instead, there's an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. And this helps us know exactly who this child is. 
There it said that he is the one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. In Psalm 2, the nations are conspiring against the Messiah, Yahweh's anointed one, the Lord's anointed one. The Lord decrees that he will be a father to the Messiah, and the Messiah will rule the nations with a rod of iron. In Revelation 12, faithful Israel is the one who brings forth the Messiah. John identifies two signs in the heavens. It is in the book of Isaiah that the Lord told King Ahaz to ask for a sign. And let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heavens, Isaiah 7.10. Ahaz refused to ask for a sign. In response, Isaiah told him that the Lord will give him a sign, the virgin bearing a son who will be called Emmanuel. Here, we're getting the cosmic, heavenly, visionary account of the Emmanuel sign being fulfilled. It's amazing. Those who are on earth, it's all humility. And it's a quiet night until angels break the sky and shepherds hear them singing God's praises. But in the heavenlies, it's war. It's the final invasion of the one who would conquer the dragon, the Emmanuel sign, fulfilled. It's the turning point of all history. And in Revelation 12, he goes from being born to caught up to heaven. It's a, one of the briefest portrayals of Christ's victory in all of Scripture. There's no elaboration on his ministry his death, or even his resurrection. It's just incarnation and ascension. But it's meant to say everything in between. He is the one who has conquered the dragon. And the ascension reminds you and I as believers that though the dragon still rages against us, the seed of the woman is reigning from the throne. And we shouldn't be confused we shouldn't be confused. The, the child and the dragon aren't peers. It reminds me of that great cinematic masterpiece, near masterpiece, um, the Lego Batman movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin the plot for you. Um, sorry, spoiler alert. But the whole plot of the movie is that Joker and Batman... Um, are going at each other. And Joker wants Batman to understand how much he needs the Joker. Batman can't be Batman if there's no bad guy, if there's no Joker. And Batman, with all his issues, he doesn't want to be in a relationship of that sort. And he, at the very end, does come to say, well, yes, I need, I need the Joker. That's not the case between the, the male child. That's an illustration by contrast. That's not the case between the male child and the dragon. They're foes, but not equals. And in fact, the victory that the male child secures, he, he deploys Michael the archangel in verse 7 as his agent and representative in the heavenly realms to enforce that victory. That's what it says there, there that great heavenly battle that takes place. And that's a good reminder that though we shouldn't mess with Satan, we shouldn't be afraid of him if we belong to the one 
who rules and reigns and who is ascended on high. They are foes, but they are not equals. And finally, in the last verse there, verse 6, we see the flight into the wilderness. And in there, we want to draw out much of our hope in the time while we await for Jesus' return. It is evident that the vision here, part of what's happening in these first couple verses of chapter 12 is a recapitulation of the entire drama of the biblical narrative. The birth pangs of the woman symbolize the, persian, the persecution of God's people up into the birth of Christ. Satan has been trying to destroy the seed of the woman since the initial promise was given in the garden. The entire Old Testament is summarized in this picture of the dragon standing before the woman in labor, waiting for an opportunity to try to devour her child. It's what we see in Cain versus Abel, and Ishmael versus Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, Pharaoh versus Moses, King Saul versus David, the prophets of Baal versus Elijah, Darius' officials versus Daniel, Haman versus Esther, and we could go on and on. And then finally, Herod versus Mary's infant son, Jesus. The drama doesn't end with the dragon's failure to devour the child. The vision here ends with the woman fleeing the dragon into a wilderness. But in that wilderness, she is sustained by God for 1260 days. The fleeing of the faithful covenant community into the wilderness should not come as a surprise to us. This is part of the way that God delivers his people through trials. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. It is when the Lord delivered Israel from the tyranny of Pharaoh, he leads them out into a wilderness period. And there is nourishment for an extended period. We see that God provided for and cared for Elijah when he is on the flee in the wilderness. Jesus' parents flee from Herod in Matthew 2. But in the wilderness, Jesus is the one when attacked by the enemy is victorious and does not give in to Satan's temptations. The period between Christ's ascension and his return to glory, one way that we should be prepared to look at it as a wilderness-like experience. We have confidence in the final victory, but knowing that our adversary is still seeking to harm us. But in the end, he cannot conquer us. So in this end time wilderness in which the church exists and is still advancing the mission of spreading the gospel, making disciples, we can be certain of a spiritual protection, but also we should not be surprised if we suffer physical harm due to the schemes of our enemy, due to persecution. And when we do so, we can do so with confidence based on our union with the one who conquered. And based on the testimony of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, that those who suffer for the sake of the male child will be vindicated and God will bring vengeance against their enemies. And we find comfort in trial not only that God will sustain us through it, and not only that there will be a resurrection to come, even if we lose our lives, 
we find comfort in that it is a set period of time. It is not indefinite. That's part of the image of the 1260 days. It's not a literal reference to the number of days, but it's, it's a way of referring to the symbol of three and a half years or 42-month period. It's the established time that Daniel spoke of tribulation that would come in Daniel 7, 9, and 12. It began at Christ's ascension and it continues until his return. The dragon will pursue and harass the church in the wilderness. But that time will not last forever. And the church will not be conquered. And that is our hope. That beyond all opposition we face in this world, there is a spiritual enemy who is defeated. And so we know that Satan's reign is subordinate reign in this world. And it is for a set period of time. This glimpse into the spiritual battle behind the struggles that you and I face. We can be certain of the outcome because it's been secured by Christ. It's not only an encouragement to endure persecution, but it's to preserve in holiness. That we are to pursue holiness knowing that compromise with the world means compromising with Satan. And finally, the church's hope is not just that one day her persecution will end, but that for each and every day, the resources necessary according to God's will for his people, the resources necessary to persevere in the wilderness will be provided. We get a glimpse of our hope from the heavenly perspective. And though our enemy rages against us still, we are unconquerable because of the person and work of Christ. Amen. And let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of God's word. Let us pray together. As we come to this Christmas season, we are reminded of our great hope that the humble infant child comes to rage war against our enemy and he is victorious and so in this Christmas season we celebrate with shouts of joy adoring the one who lived, died rose again and ascended on our behalf and is returning the one who has conquered sin, Satan, and death. To Christ be all the glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.